This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted today to be joined by Harry Hargrave. Harry is the CEO of the Museum of the Bible, a 430,000-square-foot building located just three blocks from the United States Capitol. The Museum of the Bible is one of the most technologically advanced museums in the world. This embodies the wisdom of the great early 20th century Zionist rabbi, Rav Cook, who said, the old shall be renewed and the new shall be sanctified, and together they will become torches that illuminate Zion. Harry has enjoyed a four-decade career in business before joining the founding team of the Museum of the Bible. He did everything from finding the site, obtaining the approvals, overseeing planning and development, and now leads this remarkable institution. He's also the chairman of the Miracle of Nazareth International Foundation and the Christian Workers Foundation, and is a founding elder of the Park City's Presbyterian Church in Dallas, Texas. Harry, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Wonderful to be with you, Mark. Thanks for inviting me. So as CEO of the Museum of the Bible, you obviously have intimate access to everything in the Bible, every passage in the Bible, and tell us about the passage that you chose to discuss today and why it's meaningful to you. I've chosen uh, the passage of Psalms 19. It means a lot to me because of the and the way in which it was written by King David, uh, the fact that he draws uh, God's glory and the glory of the earth together, presents it in a combination. And it's just a beautiful series of passages. It ends with uh, that famous prayer uh, that we always hear about the glory of God and certainly enjoy it. Turn my Bible and read how it ends because you begin the ending usually. And it says that the words of my mouth the meditation in my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. That's a beautiful passage for people of all faiths, but especially the Jewish and Christian faith. And when you um, pray the psalm, you pray the last part first, you were saying? I do, because it's the most comforting and ongoing part that I, I read. Of course, every time I read from the scripture, it gives me different thoughts, different ideas, because it's a living word based on my own thoughts and what God's Spirit has led me to believe. It's absolutely the living word. I mean, the proof of that is that the more one studies, I was going to say almost every passage, but absolutely every passage, it's just, it's the gift that keeps giving. You keep learning new things. It never tires and it never stops yielding. It's always there for us. So tell us about some of the things that you've been learning from verse 14 of Psalm 19. What have you been learning? What has it been yielding? What has it been doing in your life recently? What have you been thinking about or meditating on when you read 1814? I think more and more of uh, the chapters that, that I'm talking about, of course, are in the Psalms 19 and the, the beauty of the words, which many times have led to some good songs and even a few modern songs, but, uh, you know, Sweeter Than Honey. Have you ever heard of that song? Of course, yeah. <laughs> it's a very popular country and western song and those words are in this scripture so it's very meaningful to me from an enjoyable and fun standpoint as far as our museum is concerned psalms 19 is very important because if you walk into our building that's basically what you you see and unfortunately 
we've yet to figure out the best way to express that to people who come and visit the museum because we have a presentation of glass at the entrance of the museum, which was actually fabricated in Germany at the Meyer Fabrication House in Munich. It's a beautiful thing that has the Bottomer works that were found by Bottomer back in the 50s, 1950s, and brought to the U.S. He was a Swiss collector. It's in our History of the Bible exhibit. The Bottomer Codex is, is very interesting. It shows most of the Psalms 17 all the way through Psalms 118. And we have Psalms 19, uh, 1 through 14 on that glass in about 16 different languages. Wow. And that's the first thing that the person coming to the museum sees, the visitor sees? Yeah, it's actually the second thing. The first thing you see when you walk up to the museum are the huge 39-foot-tall doors that weigh, uh, cumulatively, the two doors weigh about 14 tons. Beautiful uh, doors that are the, the first book of Genesis. And it's uh, created by a local Washington artist in a beautiful way. And uh, we're very proud of those. And you walk through those doors to the uh, see the Bottomer Psalms in glass. And they're uh, equally as beautiful. And then you go through the mundane elements of security. And you get cleared to go through security. So the second thing you see is this psalm. And I suppose or is the message that you're sending that when people enter the museum, you want them to think, may these words be on my mouth and the meditation in my heart may what I'm about to learn, what I'm about to see, what I'm about to be experienced be on my mouth and in my heart. Would you come be a tour guide for us? <laughs> <laughs> you do a great job. I would love to. I'll be an honorary tour guide anytime. I mean, what you have constructed is something so magnificent and so important and so new. I mean, it, it's incredible the, war, the world did not have a museum of the Bible before you and your colleagues started it, but now we certainly do. We had a lot of help. A lot of individuals participated in planning it and, and designing it, building it. And so I was just along for the ride, uh, you might say. And, and it was a wonderful seven or eight years of my life. And, and I feel truly blessed to be part of it. Who had the idea? Who, who woke up one morning and said, you know what? The world does not have a museum of the Bible. The Bible is the most important book. It's the most important thing in the history of the world. There's lots of artifacts obviously ancient and more modern. So there should be a museum for it. And what do you know? The world doesn't have it and the world should have it. Who, who said that? Well, actually, members of the Green family were sitting around talking about it one day and realized they had a huge collection and only they were able to see their collection and they wanted to share it with the world. They basically had a museum, but they wanted to become the museum. Uh, yeah, they had it in one of their warehouses, but it wasn't specifically to show the world and they wanted to share it with the world. So they sent me out to look at three different cities. We settled on Washington, D.C. as the location would have it the most impact throughout the world because people come to Washington to go to museums. And we felt it important to share the Bible with the world. As you said at the beginning, it's the, the, it's the, the book that keeps talking to you. I mean, it's a miracle in so many ways, but probably more than any, it's that. It's that no matter at what stage of life you're at, from obviously small childhood to adulthood, but no matter where you are emotionally or psychologically or commercially, it's, it always says something new and something relevant, almost no matter what passage you turn to. And, and now, thank God, there's this uh, museum for it. So, so the Greens, they're building this private collection. Then they said, let's share this with the world. And you found D.C. because you're right. D.C. is 
probably the museum capital of the world or right up there. Yes, yes. And Steve Green was the driving force behind it. He's president of Hobby Lobby, of course. And Steve uh, had this vision for it. And when I was hired, I was told, oh, we'll probably have a 100,000 square foot museum. And we don't know what city we're going to be in. So go out and look around. And we, we also had some professional surveys done, which were quite good. And, and it all pointed to Washington. So I started looking for 100 to 150,000 square foot buildings. I looked all over D.C. and it took me a whole year to find this location. But we ended up with 430,000 square feet and we're out of space. So we're continuing to grow and we hope to provide more and more opportunities for people of all faiths to come and enjoy the Museum of the Bible and learn more about what the Bible is and hopefully encourage them to pick it up, read it, and better understand the God that we, we live for. What has surprised you about how people respond to the Bible? So they come into the museum. What surprised you by how they engage with this greatest of all texts? Yeah, of course, we don't do any proselytization. You walk through it and you get out of it what you search for. We see all sorts of results of coming to the museum. Some people really are moved by it. Some people think it's a great historical perspective that they want to learn more about. And uh, really, it's our job to show them the Bible and encourage them to read the Bible and give them reasons for that. It's not our purpose to explain to them why they need to believe a certain way. And so people come out of looking at the Bible and they've either spent one hour, two hours, four hours, six hours. I have some people that I'm close to who came and stayed three six-hour stints, three different days, and still felt like they hadn't seen everything. We love it. Three different days. So what are they doing for 15 or 20 hours? I don't know. <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're certainly studying it deeper than I have the capability. But are they in front of an exhibit, or are they reading and studying somewhere? Like, What are they doing physically? Well, physically, they're walking, reading, and studying what the exhibits are communicating to them. We do have some very active and interactive exhibits in the museum that are a lot of fun. And of course, our objective is to make the Bible interesting and make the museum fun for everybody of all ages. So there's a good bit to do. We have uh, 3D technology in the building that people can, can use. We have simulated ride in the building that takes you through Washington, D.C. on a simulation. It's called Washington Revelations. Very much fun. We have an experience of the Old Testament, which pretty much explains the, the beginnings of man and, of course, the Hebrew culture. And it is terrific. The beginnings of man, uh, like Genesis 1, like the very beginning? Yes. And we're able to communicate that through this exhibit. And it's won some of the greatest awards in America. They're secular awards for their creativity and the design and then the message sharing. So... You know, we just encourage people to come see us and check us out. We've made it through COVID-19. It has been a trial just like all of us in the world have experienced. But um, because we're 430,000 square feet, we're able to stay socially distanced. And uh, we don't have the large tours like we used to have, but we still can have small tours. But we're very careful with our guests and very careful with our employees. And We've got a lot of folks walking around cleaning constantly. So we encourage people to come anytime. We're open usually from 10 to 5. And uh, for people 
like me, a little older, we'll open up earlier for them around nine to give them an hour so that the young people don't uh, take up too much space from them. Right. In terms of the artifacts that exist in the world, how well artifact, if that's a word, artifacted is the Bible? How much of the Bible do we have from truly ancient times? And how important is the continual act of discovery? Are we constantly, presumably in Israel, are we constantly finding the Bible in the Holy Land? Archaeological discoveries are still finding the Bible to be true and fulfilling the promises that God made to all of us. I can't tell you what percentage of the artifacts have been discovered. Many, many more are available. We have an active archaeological dig that's going on almost all the time. We have what's known as a scholar's initiative, and I can't remember the town which they're digging right now. My uh, wife and I and our kids go to Israel all the time. My wife lived there when she was uh, a rabbinical student, but uh, our favorite place in the country where we love everything is Ir David. One reads the book of Samuel, and then one goes to Ir David and sees where it all happens. And we've been going now since we've been married 13 years, and there's always new things being discovered of immense importance. I mean, new things from biblical days is being discovered, exactly as you say, showing the Bible is true, showing the Bible is real. And it's just been an exciting journey for us over the last 13 years to be so involved with Ear David and to just see these discoveries come to life and just bring the land of the Bible and the place of the Bible to so many people. That's right. It makes the Bible come alive when you go to Israel and spend one or two weeks there. It's just an incredible expenditure of your time and your money, and it's well worth it. Right, and you're bringing it to uh, so many people here in the United States. And The dig we're involved in is a Tel Shimon. Oh, okay. Yeah, we think it's important. To, uh, that's the contemporary look at the archaeological endeavors, and we'd love to be able to go into Iraq more and into Egypt more and participate in those markets. They're just not as open, of course, as what Israel is to us. Right. I mean, Iraq, that's where Nineveh was. That would be interesting to be able to go there. We have an ongoing dialogue with the leaders of the country of Iraq, very good relationship with them, but uh, we've been unable to work out where we feel like it's appropriate to go in and do any archaeological analysis. Right. How have you seen people who discover the Bible for the first time? I mean, does it genuinely start a lifelong love affair or is it just kind of something that they come in, enjoy the day and leave? Or because the, the Bible is, you know, once you start getting immersed in it, it just draws you deeper and deeper and fills your heart and your soul and your mind with so much. And it always does whenever you give it the opportunity. Did you see that with people who come to the museum? We see it a lot. And of course, there's sort of, uh, I'll call it preordained or predisposed uh, to study or they're not. And uh, some just are happy to see the, uh, more verbal presentations. Some really want to get granular and get into what we're expressing about a particular artifact. And of course, a lot of what we do is the stories that are in the Bible and the stories of those artifacts, or even going into creation of some studies of how artifacts are traded around the world, both properly and improperly. Uh, But we want to tell the stories of how people see the value of the Bible throughout our world. And it's, it's quite interesting. In terms of acquisitions, how do you acquire? Like, do people from around the world have stuff that you want? We have a great deal of work in Oklahoma City in our warehouses in Oklahoma City, where we maintain, keep, and 
curate everything that comes through our systems. And we curate for third parties as well as ourselves. We try to best understand the provenance of every item that comes into the museum. And we're very careful about that. Initially, we started the collection at a time when the economy worldwide was in distress. So people were bringing us things just out of the blue. Uh, Now we're buying from universities and we're buying from auction houses, the world-renowned auction houses, people who can certify the provenance of the items that they're offering us. Yeah, I imagine that you must have a significant problem of frauds and fakes that you got to sort through. Every museum in the world does, but we also experience that. For example, we found some things, uh, some um, clay items that were a thousand years old and They did not have the proper provenance. We're trying to give them back to the host country that they came from. And and that's not as easy as you would think. But we are working through our State Department and others in our government and experts in, in Europe at Oxford and other places to facilitate returning any item that uh, may have been acquired inappropriately. And that doesn't mean we acquired it inappropriately. We're not aware of anything we've acquired inappropriately. But there are things that were acquired by people who then sold them to us. But how do you do provenance with something that's several thousand years old? Very difficult. That's why you have some of the the best uh, scientists and uh, scholars in the world reviewing the documents. And if we didn't have a top-notch department in that area would be in trouble. And we're very fortunate that we've got a good group. Right. So you almost have to have scientists who can try to analyze the original source itself because it would be impossible to do provenance for thousands of years. Are there valuable things kind of in the proverbial attic or basement that people have and may or may not know? Does that ever happen? Or is it more structured and standardized than that? It's more something that that has been in, in the trading market for some time. We get a lot of folks who ask us to look at great grandma's Bible and they've heard that, it, you know, something's happened, but it's like anything you trade. If it has a, a signature from Billy Graham or a signature from somebody, you know, who, who is well-known and renowned, it becomes more valuable. But most of those, unfortunately, are wonderful family artifacts and, and things that they need to hold on to. But we'll look at their items because who knows, we might pull up something that has been in an attic for, 100 years, make a great television show, wouldn't it? What's the intersection of interesting items with American history in the Bible? Because obviously the founders were men of great faith and loved their scripture. We study American uh, heritage all the way from the Mayflower forward. We have a complete uh, half of a floor. So we have roughly uh, 40,000 square feet dedicated to American history and American culture. And we talk about everything from the Mayflower going forward to uh, racial issues and how the Bible has had an impact on all the things that today we're struggling with as a nation. You probably have items from Martin Luther King because Martin Luther King was living the Exodus story. Yes, it's you know one of the fascinating things, talk about the Bible in American history, is if you look at some of Martin Luther King's sermons, in fact, many of them, they're basically commentaries on a passage in Exodus. It'll reference the verse from Exodus, and then the sermon's text will be right below it. Yeah, it's just so great that you're bringing that to so many people. Yeah. Well, it's an important part of the nation's history, and of course, an entire subculture of the United States and the world now. That's right. Well, I can't wait till we can get to go next. So the um, concluding question always goes from, 
one text, the sacred text of the Bible, to another text, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And on the first page of the book, he says, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. I love it. Yeah, that, that just shows you there's always people, uh, there's no such thing as an expert, you know? And uh, it reminds me of the scripture where it says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's so true. We need to give each other some room to fail. That's right. So in your years of both scouting, founding, and now leading the Museum of the Bible, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? You've been the gateway through so many people have either initiated or deepened their relationship with the Bible? That's a deep theological question, and it has to do with the nature of man. And what I see in mankind is a a great ability to make mistakes and a great ability to forgive themselves and one another. The method by which people take to do that for Christians is through Jesus. For Jewish people of the Jewish faith, it's, it's another manner. It's, it's a following of the writings and the laws, and that's what the Bible talks about. But the whole idea of can we exist without faith, and in your position and my position of faith that centers around the Bible, the whole thing is what you get in the Museum of the Bible. You get a perspective, a new perspective, maybe a renewal of a perspective. Uh, again, it's, it's not meant to convert you, but it's meant to make you think and make you realize that this book is so much more important and impactful than an old dusty book that sits on the coffee table of your grandmother. That's right. No, it's truly the living word. Yeah, it is the living word. No question. I can remember sitting on an airplane outside of Phoenix one time or at the Phoenix airport reading my Bible and something I'd read four or five times. And based on the circumstances of my life in that particular night, it totally changed my life too, you know? And it was in the book of James. And isn't it great to have a book that speaks to you in different ways based on your circumstances and your understanding and based on the spirit of the word, because it's living. And it tells you, and it, it, it seeks out your soul and just pierces you. That's why we're doing what we're doing and why we're experiencing this right now. That's right. Well, the great uh, Kutzka Rebbe was once asked, why does it say in the Torah, these words shall be on your heart? Because what good is it? The words are on your heart. They got to be in your heart. And he said, because you have to open your heart. That's right. That's one of the great things that you're doing for so many people is you're opening the Bible and opening the hearts of the Bible by making it so interesting and so accessible and so fun. So thank you for all you do. Well, thank you. Thank you for allowing us to shed some light on our work, but also to enjoy just spending 30 minutes with you at this time. Absolutely. And I look forward to meeting you in person as soon as we get to DC next. Good. Thank you very much. Thank you. You are the God of the brave. If you give us a breakthrough,